Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, it's great to have Isaac Prilaltensky on the podcast. Isaac holds the inaugural Irwin and Barbara Motner Chair in Community Wellbeing at the University of Miami. He has published 12 books and over 140 articles and chapters. His interests are in the promotion of well-being in individuals, organizations, and communities, and in the integrations of wellness and fairness. His most recent book is How People Matter, Why It Affects Health, Happiness, Love, Work, and Society, co-authored with his wife, Dr. Ora Prilaltensky. Dr. Pilotensky, it is so great to have you on the Psychology Podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I've wanted to have you on the show for a long time. The topics you study are so essential uh, to uh, the world, of course, to society, to politics, to lots of other things, but also the field we both work in, positive psychology. So I thought we could um, go through a lot of your work and, uh, and link it to these other things that I just mentioned. Great. Great. Okay, let me start off by asking you what your own conceptualization of well-being is. Well, in my view, well-being is multidimensional. And my research team and I developed a a multifaceted conception of well-being, which we summarize in the acronym ICOPE. I, interpersonal, community, occupational, physical, psychological, and economic well-being. And in our view, this uh, model of well-being pays more attention to contextual factors than maybe other models like the SPIRE model by Tal Ben-Shahar or the PERMA model by Seligman, which is very well-known. So we felt that we needed to emphasize more the interaction between internal factors like psychological well-being and external factors like occupational and community well-being, which have a huge impact on how we feel. So in other words, 
our framework uh, is uh, highly contextualized. Yeah, that is, believe it or not, not to you, but to others, that's pretty novel. The whole history of well-being research and thinking, even going back to you know the, the humanistic psychologists, which I'm a big fan of, um, okay. uh, but a lot of people try to present, uh, people uh, have criticized Maslow's ideas of self-actualization as being too indiv- individualistic. Mm-hmm. Now, they're not aware of his more recent attempts, um, not more recent today, but the mo- towards the end of his life, uh, recent uh, attempts to, um, to bring in um, community and bring in ideas of transcendence and synergy with the environment. But still, that, that idea of self-actualization still has a very individualistic feel to it, doesn't it? Yes, I agree. Uh, So in the field of positive psychology, I feel there is a risk of what I call interiorization of well-being, you know, making it all about the interior, what happens underneath the skin. But yet at the same time, we're very aware of the impact of interpersonal well-being, you know, where we know that social support, emotional support, the connectivity with other people is hugely influential in our own well-being. Um, so thinking about community well-being, occupational well-being, it's just an extension of something that we know very well from psychology, the impact of it, early forms of attachment, secure attachment, um, bonding with your friends, friendships, peer relations, etc. So in a way, it's just an extension of that. It goes, if we think about Bronfenbrenner's ecological models, you know, we go from the person to the family, to the school, the community, church, all the way to the nation and social policy. So I think it's really important to think about well-being as sitting, residing at the nexus of all these spheres of influence. And in in recent work we've done, uh, we realized that if we think about well-being as an outcome, you know, people want to be happy. Okay, so let's consider that's an outcome. Mm. So we ask ourselves, what are some of the antecedents of that well-being or happiness or health or mental health? And we found two interesting uh, factors predicting happiness and well-being, which have to do with the environment. And one is fairness. To what extent do you experience fairness in your relationships, at work, in the community? So fairness has a direct impact on the level of wellness, so to speak. So fairness impacts wellness but it's also mediated by our feeling valued by other people and having an ability to add value. So in other words, the more I feel respected, treated fairly, treated with dignity, the more I feel valued. And the more I feel valued, the happier I become. And But it's not just about feeling valued. It's about giving me opportunities to add value. So when I am in a context like work or school where people build on my strengths, 
when people feel that I have something to contribute and encourage the expression of assets, Hmm. my happiness also goes up. So fairness in a way way, predicts feeling valued and adding value. And these two predict happiness as well. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. And those are the two components of of the need to matter. It just so happens. So not just That's fairness, right. but okay. also your need to matter. That's your your definition of the need to matter. So mm-hmm. I want to let's zoom in for a second on this need. Are you making the claim that there is a need to matter in humans that is a separable need from perhaps uh, the need to belong, and perhaps even the other needs than like self determination theory, or even though that Maslow proposed, or even that I proposed mm-hmm. in my new book? Is mm-hmm. there a, is so is there is it a unique need that you believe deserves attention all on its own? Yes, and I believe that it's a meta need or an umbrella need. Because when you think about feeling valued, feeling valued incorporates feeling like you belong, a sense of community, attachment to your parents and family, just to name a few. These are about Mm -hmm. feeling valued, feeling like I belong to this group, to my family, to the community. When you think about adding value, adding value is an umbrella construct for self-determination, mastery, competence, freedom, self-expression. So there are many uh, human needs, among others, in self-determination theory, autonomy, competence, and relatedness. So I believe that feeling valued and adding value encapsulate a lot of psychological needs. And when you put these two constructs together, the umbrella feeling valued with the umbrella adding value, you experience mattering. Mm. And mattering, I believe is a fundamental human need. It has many origins in evolution. If you didn't belong to a group or a tribe or a family, you may be left to your own devices and you may not survive. When you add value to the tribe, to the community, you get rewarded, you get appreciated, You feel validated, you feel seen, and this has repercussions for today's political scene where, in the very words, Black Lives Matter, we're we're seeing an entire community saying, we matter, we want to feel valued, and we want opportunities to add value. So this complementarity is very important, feeling value and having opportunities to add value. Yeah, I really, really do love that. And you, you do see this kind of seesaw in a sense where when you some certain groups um, who have uh, historically not have um, had as much power or um, or the feeling to matter, once they start to matter more uh, along the lines of fairness, you see other groups, you know, uh, maybe come out of the woodwork saying, well, hold up, we matter too. So now you're seeing, you know, there are white supremacist group who are making the same case too, right? They're saying white white people matter too, mm-hmm. you know? So it's a, it's an interesting sort of psychological psychological seesaw dynamic of control of power um, at, at a very higher level, which leads me to think: How can we get out of 
that because ultimately we don't want to uh, stay in a in a power play situation, right? We want to, I think, be, both me and you are united in 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 mm-hmm. the desire for a self-actualizing society that is grounded in fairness for everyone, where everyone feels like they matter. Um, and and my gosh, how does how how does one get to there? Right, and. You are addressing a very important point, which goes to the heart of the nexus between mattering and fairness. Mm. Uh, Because some groups have experienced historically a lot of privilege. Um, And they are having a hard time giving giving up some of that uh, privilege. So instead of saying, Let's look at corrective justice. So what's corrective justice? What can we do to repair harms done in the past, right? Maybe by my group. So so what can we do in order to correct, repair, heal injustices of the past? When you are willing to engage in that act of reconciliation, then you come to terms with the fact that, well, maybe we need affirmative action, you mm-hmm. know, because affirmative action is part of a healing process. Maybe we need the reconciliation, truth and reconciliation commissions, you know, like there was in South Africa, because they bring about healing. So when one group, let's say white supremacists, they say, oh, I am forgotten now, Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like society is too multicultural, you know, like mm-hmm. they're paying attention too much to minorities and we white people are are being forgotten. Yeah. Uh, but I, I believe that they are not paying attention to all the privilege that some groups have had. And and let me be very clear. I think we all matter in society. Right. We just need I to... Love that. We, we need to find a way for us to rectify injustices of the past and to learn not just to acquire more power, but also to share power. And this is, for example, in New Zealand, in the 1800s, Maori people signed the Treaty of Waitangi with the crown, with the British crown. And the treaty was never upheld. You know, the Maori people were never really given the rights that they thought they were signing up for. So over the years, the white population in New Zealand, which they called the Pakeha population, they decided to give up some of their power Mm -hmm. and to engage in this process of reconciliation, educating the the whole nation about the Treaty of Waitangi. And for me, that's an example of people saying, I am willing and ready to give up some power so that we can all experience fairness. So it's not just the province of the white Europeans' privileged groups. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love to get right to the heart of the matter, and it just does seem like the fight for power has trumped uh, the fight uh, for uh, quality in some ways, you know, or the fight for fairness uh, for everyone. I I agree. And which doesn't mean, by the way, 
that we should neglect um, any aspect of the population. Um, yeah. So when when you when we think about the psychological reactions to feeling forgotten, you have two opportunities. You know, you have a fork on the road that you need to decide: Am I going to become xenophobic? to regain my power, you know, am I going to become a white supremacist to reclaim my lost, diminished sense of power? Or, or am I going to fight for fairness and justice for all the groups? And it's very important, you know, historically, um, it has happened that some oppressed groups, when they acquired more power, became the oppressive group. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. you know uh, people like Franz Fanon and Albert Memmi, they documented that in colonial settings like um, Algeria and Tunisia. So it's very important to be mindful of the psychology of acquiring too much power. I agree. I've been on the search for the perfect mattress for the past few years. And let me tell you, I've gone through so many mattresses. My friends have made fun of me because for so long, I didn't actually own a mattress. I just went through so many free trials. I had no idea what it feels like to be well rested until I tried a Helix mattress. Are you not able to sleep because of stress and anxiety? It's definitely understandable given the current state of the world. Psychological research shows that high quality sleep is so important for stress and well-being though. Lack of quality sleep can affect your memory, increase mood swings, and even can lead to depression. While a number of factors contribute to poor sleep quality, your choice of mattress can really matter a lot. Helix Sleep makes personalized mattresses right here in America and ships them straight to your door with free, no-contact delivery, free returns, and a 100-night sleep trial. To choose a mattress, Helix made a quiz that takes just two minutes to complete and matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. If you like a mattress that's really soft or firm, you sleep on your side or your back or your stomach, or you sleep really hot. With Helix, there's a specific mattress for each and everyone's unique taste. Personally, I took the quiz and I was matched with the Helix Sunset Lux because I wanted something that felt soft and I sleep mostly on my side all night. I've got to say, I love my Helix mattress. I wake up really feeling refreshed and ready to work out or start my work. Also, I've been tracking my sleep with a device, and my sleep score is consistently in the good or excellent range. This is a new thing for me, so it's really exciting to finally get high-quality sleep. I really do love Helix, but you don't have to take my word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ, Wired Magazine, and Apartment Therapy. Just go to helixsleep.com psychology, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you probably will. Right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com psychology. Get up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows at helixsleep.com psychology. That's helixsleep.com slash psychology. Okay, now back to the show.
uh, and for I would say for in groups to police themselves a little bit because I think we have a tendency when um, someone has a moral transgression from our in group to give it more of a pass than when we see a moral transgression from an out group, and I think that that uh, needs to happen all around. You, you know, even within the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, if if some individuals within the movement um, start to uh, to be discriminative against white people. You know, mm-hmm. that seems to mm-hmm. be not towards the aims of fairness either. So I mm-hmm. think that there that, that this is just a very important uh, thing that we all need to do is, is to be wary of that human tendency, regardless of what group we're in. Yes, and I, I, I'm reminded, reminded of social movements in the 60s where supposedly everybody was fighting for social justice. But a lot of women tended to be relegated to secondary jobs in mm-hmm. the social movements um, and that wasn't very fair, right? Uh, so no, no. It, it was it was a lot of white males leading uh, social movements and really not paying a lot of attention to what either black people or women were saying in the social movement. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, exactly. So we have to be very reflective uh, and monitor uh, our our own tendencies, our yeah. blind spots, so to speak. Yeah, very well, very well put. Um, I want to quote you for a second. You say that, quote, mattering is not evenly distributed across populations. Some have too much of it, while others have too little. In the right amount, however, mattering can contribute to personal and collective flourishing. What I want to push you on a little bit, because I want to understand what you mean by it, what would it mean for someone to have too much mattering? That's an interesting idea, you know? Um, yes. That's an interesting concept. It's like, I don't, I, do you want to be the one in charge of saying what groups have too much and <laughs> which ones don't? <laughs> Have enough? Yeah, yeah th- th- that's a good point. And I think um, some people um, have um, narcissistic tendencies, which are, no. exas- <laughs> which are exacerbated by contemporary society, including social media, and the, f- the need for everyone to become a celebrity on his or her own. Uh, so there are definitely contextual factors, contributing factors to this push to celebritize yourself. Hmm. Um, And in my mind, yes, you can matter too much to the point that you're taking up a lot of space, you take up all the oxygen in the room, and you don't give enough mattering space to other people. So, So you can think of um, the Aristotelian construct of the royal path, you know, or 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 the middle, the middle way. Uh, too little mattering, it's no good, right? We feel neglected, forgotten, invisible. But too much mattering means that I am becoming center stage, and I'm really not balancing uh, what's good for me with what's good for other people. So I, I, in that quote, I talked about personal and collective wellness, which has to do with what I call a me culture and a we culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A me culture claims I have the right to feel valued so that I may be happy. In a we culture, we say, we all have the right 
to feel valued and add value so that we can all experience happiness and fairness. So mm-hmm. if you engage in a me type of behavior, you can matter too much, frankly. And we all know these people and their mattering comes at the expense of others. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, and um, and it's subtle, but it but your distinction does not map on completely to the difference in already in the psychological literature between individualistic and collectivistic cultures. Um, one may seem on first blush to say, well, isn't he just saying that's the difference between like Eastern and Western, you know, collective? And and it's no, I know, I get it, I get it, I get what you're saying. It's it's subtle. But they're not the same thing because one could still live in a collectivist culture and for the individual to not matter, right? Um, yes. Correct, correct? It is correct. And what I said about mattering too much or too little applies equally to well-being in collectivist societies and individualistic societies. So I believe we need to find a, a the, just the right balance between the two tendencies. I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, my sister lived in Israel on a kibbutz for many years. Mm. And, you know, a kibbutz is a collective society. There is no private property. Uh, you work for the collective and in return, you get all expenses paid, right? You have a nice house and vacations paid and health care and a car when you need it and entertainment. It, it, on, in many ways, it's a very it, idyllic place, a kibbutz. But sometimes the societal norms that give you all these goodies, all these resources can become a little oppressive. So to yeah. use my sister's example, she wanted to do a master's degree in educational administration, but the kibbutz said, no, we want you to be a nurse. And she said, "Like, but I don't want to become a nurse. I want to become, you know, an educational administrator. This is just one little example of how a collectivist society where you share everything can also become quite oppressive of individual expression, right? Um, so that's not good. On the other, my sister left the kibbutz eventually, by the way, because she felt that her 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 needs were not being met. On the other hand, we have highly individualistic societies, you know, like the U.S. culture, um, where individual freedoms just trump everything else. Um, so, oh, you know, freedom is the single most important value. Therefore, I don't need to wear masks. I don't need to be vaccinated. Basically saying, I don't care about other people, right? Because freedom supersedes the well-being of the community. So you can see neither extreme is healthy. Mm, mm. We have to create spaces where we balance the well-being of the collective with the well-being and needs of the individuals. Yeah, no, you, thank you for clarifying that. Uh, I, I understand very clearly now what you mean by in the right amount, mm-hmm. uh, mattering can contribute to personal and collective flourishing. Thank you for that um, clarification. You know, you argued you argue in one of your papers that for mattering to materialize, certain moral values must be present. Can you explain what those moral values are that you that you speak of? Yes. So 
continuing the conversation on mattering too much, um, if we do not pay attention to the value of fairness, I very quickly can become obsessed with my own mattering, which we see all around us all the time, pretty much. So what does fairness do? You can think of fairness as a balancing value because fairness, there are different types. I talked earlier about corrective fairness when we're trying to fix an injustice in the past, but there is also what we call distributive fairness, which is allocating people resources based on you know what they deserve to each his or her due. There is also procedural fairness, making sure that if people make decisions affecting your life, that you have voice and choice, you know, about that decision, that you're not left out of decisions impacting your life, your career, your job, your community, etc. So we can talk about distributive justice and procedural justice. So if I really want to create a healthy society. I will be concerned not just with my own mattering, but with your mattering as well. And I couldn't do that if I didn't pay attention to the value of fairness, right? Because then it's, look, in the absence of fairness, it's a free for all. So then I say, oh, I want to matter. So, you know, I don't care if I exploit my workers because I matter more. Mm -hmm. I don't care if I suppress women's voices or black people's voices because I care about my in-group more. In other words, mattering in the absence of fairness can very quickly degenerate into a type of narcissistic culture. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely, which uh, we're seeing a lot of today. Yes, yes. You point out some interesting tensions among psychological, philosophical, and political perspectives on mattering. I found that very, very interesting mm-hmm. um, when you pointed that. Can you just briefly touch on some of those tensions? Because there's different, you know, in different philosophies and different politics, there's different ideas about that balance. Uh, yes, exactly right. So, a um, To begin with psychology, we started the conversation with the risk inherent both in positive psychology and humanistic psychology that we ascribe too too many powers to the individual, for example, to overcome adversity. And it is true that post-traumatic growth is a real phenomenon and many people do do overcome adversity and it's a testament to the human spirit. But it is also true that when you take inequality into account, um, the vast majority of poor people experience adversity that it's not so easy to overcome. Hmm. So I worry in psychology about the tendency to glorify grit and resilience too much because it tends to ignore the plight of people 
who didn't have enough psychological resources to overcome adversity. Let me be personal for a second. I lost my parents in a car accident when I was eight years old. Both of my parents died at the same time. It was very traumatic, needless to say. But I had experienced a lot of warmth and affection before my parents died. And after their death, I was adopted by an aunt who treated me like her own son. And my aunt really invested in me. And and I enjoyed psychological resources that helped me pull through. Mm. Not everyone experiences the same warmth and affection and psychological nurturance uh, to overcome, especially individuals who, because of poverty, and marginalization, they have to juggle a million things at the same time, like two jobs, lack of transportation, eviction notices, and a lot of injustice, basically. So in philosophy, in politics, in psychology, there is this tendency, which is a very American tendency, to bestow upon the individual more superpowers than we really have, okay? So you see it in in liberal, the neoliberal politics of today, which is all Mm. about the individual and become an entrepreneur. And if you work hard, you can make it, you know, lift yourself from your own bootstraps, et cetera, et cetera, all these metaphors, which tend to perpetuate a, a sense of failure in people who cannot achieve this high, sta- high status, right? Because they just say, look, all these people, I get it on the media all the time. They are telling me if I work hard enough, I can make it. But you know what? Some people have really adverse circumstances that unless we fix those, for them, the path to resilience will be very hard. Yeah, your work seems to dovetail with Bob Newbro's work a bit, yes. uh, who advocated for a balance among the values of liberty, fraternity, and equality. Um, can you compare, contrast your theory with his? Yes, and actually, uh, Bob Newbro was uh, the person who recruited me to Vanderbilt University. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> yes, so I have a very um, warm spot in my heart for Bob, who was really a wonderful scholar and, and friend. And Bob advocated for this balance between really the values of the French Revolution, right? Um, you know, which is basically about liberty fraternity and equality and if you if you put liberty and equality on two ends of a continuum okay so let's say liberty it's all about freedom what's good for me i don't want to be encumbered by social norms whatever dr fauci tells me i just want to do my own thing right so that's Mm -hmm. one extreme of liberty um and the other extreme on of equality is Maybe it doesn't matter how hard you work, you're going to get paid the same lousy payment that we're paying everybody. So think Cuba, for example, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Where it's equality with the very lowest denominator, 
right? Mm -hmm. So there is no incentive to do anything because I'm not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, or, or you can think about my sister's example on the kibbutz, right? So, oh yeah, it, we're all so equal that it doesn't matter what I want to study because it's all for the benefit of the whole anyways, right? So you can think about vices on either end of the continuum. Mm. Okay, so now you ask the question, how do you reconcile what the individual needs with what the collective needs? And this is where fraternity comes in. Because what's fraternity? Fraternity is relational well-being. Mm. And in the absence of relational well-being, where we say, Scott, how about Scott and Isaac having a chat and seeing whether we can resolve our differences? It's about civic engagement. It's about civic friendship, this Aristotelian construct. It's about the thinking about the common good. Mm. And when we engage in other extreme, either the individualistic, which is a society completely built on a meritocracy, right? If you work hard, if you're smart, you can deserve all the goodies America can offer you. You know, that's one bad extreme. The other bad extreme is really Cuba, you know, or the former Soviet Union, where, you know, uh, yeah. your, your individuality was completely erased. Yeah. Uh, I have many good friends in Cuba. It doesn't matter what, how hard you work. The government is going to tell you what to do, when to do it, how to do it. So you live a very oppressed existence. So, so yeah. then I ask myself, how do we solve these tensions? And healthy societies have robust participatory democracies mm. where people can engage in a dialogue about how to resolve differences. So an interesting study was conducted by Swiss economist Frey and Statzer a few years ago now where they compared happiness and longevity of people in cantons where they voted more often for decisions affecting their lives. Mm. So that's a form of voice and choice. People mm -hmm. participating in dialogue about what do we need as a community, for example. Do we want more pedestrian zones? Do we want to block car access to the downtown? You know, do we want to force people to recycle more, et cetera, et cetera? Well, it turns out that people who vote on referenda more often are happier and live longer. Mm. So something is telling us mm -hmm. that when I am valued, not just as an individual, but also as a citizen, my happiness goes up. Um, and I can give you opposite examples, Scott. I grew up in Argentina where there is a great deal of corruption. Mm. And corruption is toxic. So what do people do when there is corruption? They don't trust the government. They don't trust the authorities. And people just uh, withdraw from the system and there is higher levels of criminal behavior, alienation, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. 
Wow. You've, you've thought about this for a while, I can tell. <laughs> uh, well, yes. And I have to say, you know, I've lived in five countries and I grew up under a fascist dictatorship of a military dictatorship in Argentina. Yep. That will really make you socially aware really quickly. Uh, and then I lived in Israel uh, for nine years, which is a very interesting, very multicultural and complicated democracy. I lived in Canada for 15 years. I lived in Australia and I've been in the U.S. since 2003. So I've been around and I think when you are exposed to different ways of organizing yourself as a society, you begin to learn from exemplars. Um, And, you know, for example, you know, in Canada, people pay more taxes than in the U.S., but I lived there 15 years. I never paid a cent for excellent medical care I received, right? Mm. So what is that telling you? It's telling you that there are different ways for societies to organize themselves where the individual can experience more self-expression, uh, because you're not so encumbered by all these worries. So, anyways. Yeah. This is a wonderful. I mean, it's deeply uh, connected to uh, my own sort of thinking on what does a self-actualizing society look like. Um, so I really appreciate this conversation. And it's very clear to me, abundantly clear to me, that the field of community psychology needs to be better integrated in the field of positive psychology. I don't well, Why is... Why does it kind of feel like you're you're just out there like this outlier in our field? It shouldn't be that way. Yes, yes. Um, and I think part of it has to do with the yet-to-be-fulfilled promise of positive psychology, paying attention not just to individuals, but also to institutions. Remember when the field was founded, you know, it was be founded on these uh, complementary pillars of not just flourishing individuals, but also flourishing institutions and societies. And I think we have gotten a little stuck at the individual end of the continuum and I think it's not one or it's not either or, right? It's not an either or proposition that I'm advocating for forgetting the benefits of positive interventions like gratitude and savoring and mindfulness meditation. And I just want to democratize those yeah. practices so that everyone can have access to them and not just be the province of a selected few. I just want everyone to enjoy the science of positive psychology, which is not today. It's not what's happening today. I, I agree. I agree. Democratize gratitude. <laughs> That's a call. Hashtag democratize, uh, uh, well, democratize well-being more generally. Yeah. No, I love yeah, it. Democ- democratize happiness, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's abundantly clear. Hmm. that social conditions create scarcity for some people. And there is a fabulous book by Molay Nathan and Shafir, an economist and, and, an, and a psychologist from Harvard and Princeton. And they wrote this book, Scarcity. And what do they say? They say that when you happen to be poor, 
all your mental energy goes to pay the bills and to buy shoes for your kid and to pay for a school fees when there is an outing, right? So you are consumed. You are consumed by what you don't have, scarcity, right? You don't have enough money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is very little, if any, any psychological energy to invest in flourishing because you don't know where the next paycheck will come from and you don't know how you're going to pay rent before you are evicted. Um, so I think we need to pay attention to the, to the ground, to the fertile ground where happiness grows. And at present, we just think that happiness can grow out of nowhere or just out of your hide. That's poor science. That is not paying attention to the contextual factors that make you resilient enough. As in my case, you know, I lost my parents at the, when I was eight. That's pretty traumatic. But things can be compensated when you have the right psychological nurturance around you. And that's a privilege that not everyone benefits from because basically social injustice, let me put it this way. I think it's in the the simplest form. I love what you're saying. Um, I want to get a little bit deeper, though, at an existential level. Why? Why does it matter so much to to be to feel valued? You know, mm-hmm. is it? Um, I'm gonna try to play devil's advocate for a second. Like, yeah. couldn't someone say that's just so tied up with the need for self esteem? You know, that like, shouldn't we transcend that ultimately? That like, I demand to be you know valued. You know, it's mm-hmm. it, that demand that that demand and that need itself feels selfish to a certain degree. Um, so. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I'm believing everything I'm saying right now, but I'm just trying to, just for the sake of a yeah, no, conversation. I yeah. I, Why is it so important? I think from an evolutionary point of view, today, love has become what safety and food used to be for our ancestors. Wow. Um, so the need, because of evolutionary reasons, we're comparing machines. When, when we enter a room full of people, we tend to compare ourselves with others. You know, am I as good looking as these other people? Am I as well-dressed, well-spoken, well-educated, well-pedigreed as, as other people? Mm-hmm. It just happens because uh, it's a need for survival to scan the environment and, and to see how do I stack up? Will people, you know, if I have a heart attack, will, it, will anybody rush to save me or will they go to, the, to this yes. dude who is very well-dressed and high status? So when you think about it, um, it has to do with survival mm. and existing in a group, in a tribe. So that's why I want to feel valued. Now, most of us who are lucky, we have our basic needs met. You know, I'm not worrying about being eaten up by a mastodon in the African savanna. So what do I worry about? I worry about being popular. 
I worry about being loved. Um, and it is true what you're saying that in excess, that can become a self-obsession, which was the problem with the self-esteem movement. Mm-hmm. So how do I how do I guard against that tendency? My definition of mattering is that you need to feel valued by yourself and others, and you need to add value to yourself and others and others. So yeah. built into my definition of mattering is the need to pay attention to the well-being of other people. Uh, that's the difference between a me culture and a we culture. In a me culture, it's all about self-esteem, as you were saying. You know, I have the right to feel valued. Basically says, love me. I'm here. I'm great. Mm-hmm. My definition of mattering says that this is 50%. This is 100% correct about 50% of the problem, right? The other 50% of the problem is that unless you are actually adding value to other people, you run the risk of becoming self-obsessed. So that's wow. why that's why you cannot truly matter unless you are adding value to other people. Wow, 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 wow. Um, this is so interesting. So would you say uh, a, a, a real uh, loud, uh, brash narcissist who, uh, who just doesn't add value to the world at all, but just constantly screaming, I, I matter, I matter. Uh, would you actually say, well, actually, you don't. <laughs> you don't yet. You don't yet. Ex- Shut exactly. Up. exactly. Would, you, would you say that? Yeah. I would absolutely say that. <laughs> I would say you're a narcissist. You're not mattering. You're not adding value to anybody. Wow. Um, you're actually uh, reducing value to the community by your actions, by your self-obsession. Hmm. Um, so here is, you asked me before about the intersection between psychology and politics and philosophy. And you cannot just propagate a me type of mattering because in a me type of mattering, you're forgetting the the fairness part. Mm. In a we type of mattering, all of us have the right and responsibility to feel valued and add value so that we can all experience happiness and fairness. So pay attention to the key words, not just right to feel value, but right and responsibility, not just to feel valued, but to feel valued and add value so that we can all experience not just happiness, but also fairness. So six words, okay? Uh, Rights, responsibilities, feeling valued, adding value, happiness and fairness. These six constructs, must be present. If you take out a piece of it, the whole thing falls apart. This is revolutionary. I mean, this is also, this might be at odds with someone who would say, you know, you could see someone in the positive psychology community uh, doing a mindfulness meditation and saying, close your eyes. You matter because you're, you, you're human. You exist. That's it. That's all you need to do to matter. Mm -hmm. I feel like you, you're kind of saying, (laughs) 
you know, that's not really necessarily true. Right. And I, you know, um, there is a big movement in mindfulness, self-compassion. Yeah. It's a bit of a misnomer because when you really dig into it, it's more about mindfulness, compassion. It's not just self-compassion. Mm. I I know, you know, where uh, self-compassion started with Kristen Neff and then it uh, grew with Chris Germer. Um, but both of them have been highly influenced by Paul Gilbert, who's a British psychologist who wrote a fantastic book about mindfulness, compassion. Mm. And I think compassion embodies self and other compassion. Uh, but I agree with you that if this is all about me experiencing higher levels of self-actualization mm. without paying attention to the vicissitudes of suffering other people, I, I don't believe in that kind of self-compassion. Wow. I believe in self-compassion that nurtures your compassion for other people. Mm. And if you follow that trend of thought, there cannot be compassion without justice. Mm. I hear you. Uh, you're you're a bit of a rebel, though, in, in the field of positive psychology. It shouldn't be the case, but I hear you. I hear you. I, <laughs> yes, I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a little historical note uh, that may be of interest. Uh, I wrote a philosophical dissertation in psychology. You know, most psychologists write empirical studies, right? You know, conduct mm -hmm. a study, collect data, analyze statistics, etc. Well, I wrote a dissertation, a philosophical dissertation, which my department didn't want to approve because I was a rebel. I was calling into question the, let's call it the monopoly of worth in empirical studies. And I said, no, I can write a philosophical study that's worth of a dissertation. So I did. What was it called? Psychology and the status quo. It was a critique of how different branches of psychology upheld social injustice. Mm -hmm. Because of what I was saying before, that psychology tended to interiorize social problems hmm. as opposed to contextualize social problems. So I wrote a critique of the atomization of psychology. So just to show you, I wrote my dissertation in 1989. Whoa. Uh, and um, I've been a bit of a rebel ever since, I guess I've been consistent. Yes. That was even before. <laughs> that was before a lot of happiness research uh, was systematically initiated. Even Ed yes. Diener's work, yeah. Right. So I, so I guess I was a critic be before there was something to criticize. So, I was going to say <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. Well, good for you. Good for you. Um, now, this is a very important, uh, very important question. Um, can I matter if I never can learn how to roll R's like you do? Um. You, I can grant you special dispensation. Thank you. So, so Thank you. for a very small contribution to the Isaac Prilelensky Foundation, I can grant special dispensations. Thank you. 
because <laughs> I didn't know if that was one of your criteria for mattering. Um, now, now many people don't know this about you, but you're a humor writer as well. Yes. Um, you want to you know this is this is also a very important dimension of you. Um, you know, won an award. You won an award for your humor writing in 2015 by the National Newspaper Association. Yes. Is that is that a real society? Is that real? Uh, yes, actually, um, it's it's Googleable, so it must okay. be real. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. So. Well, I'd love to read some of your humor writing if you if you can somehow send it send me some links. I'll put it in the show notes. Right. So, very quick story about that. My wife and I were thinking of writing a, a book based on an inter- intervention we developed. It's called funforwellness.com. It's free to the public. If people are interested, we conducted randomized control trials on that. So long story short, we developed a wellness intervention. And I said to my wife, you know, I think if I write some humor pieces, you know, it may just lighten up the, the whole intervention. People may be more engaged. So that led to my publishing um, dozens and dozens of humor columns in the Miami Herald and Miami Today. And, and I got very positive responses. So then I said to Ora, my wife and my co-author, I said, you know, how about we write a series of books combining humor with science? Because, you know, when it comes to health and wellness, there is a lot of sermonizing You know, like, oh, if you don't eat your vegetables, you will die young and destitute, you know, that kind of thing. Um, So I said to Ora, we can just teach people how to become happier and healthier through humor. So we wrote a trilogy, The Laughing Guide to Wellbeing, The Laughing Guide to a Better Life, and The Laughing Guide to Change. Mm -hmm. And... The trilogy, all the books combine humor with science to become happier and healthier. So Mm. um, it was an interesting experiment and um, people resonate with the humor message. I call it smarter through laughter. I love it. I love it. I'm actually in the middle of taking a stand-up comedy class right now. And uh, it's good. How how, How is it going? It's going well. It's going well. I'm performing tonight. Uh, open mic. Uh, oh, well, good luck. Yeah, yeah, thank if you, you have any, any YouTubes, please send me. Oh, yes, I will. But we're not ready for prime time yet. Well, that's for sure. Okay. <laughs> not, not ready for it. But someday, maybe. Um, now, you related to this, you lead a research team that developed www.funforwellness.com. So this yes. is a research-based online platform to promote health and wellness using videos, games, and humor. Tell yes. me a little bit about this. I, I hadn't heard about this till, since uh, t- till I was right. Yeah. Right, right. So um, following the, the philosophy I was describing of engaging people in health promotion through fun, um, we created a platform with the video clips with professional actors basically enacting some struggle in their lives, interpersonal problems, occupational problems, weight issues. So we follow these characters. It's like a mini soap opera, you might mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. in which the characters have a dilemma, have a challenge. They, they use certain strategies that we propose in the intervention. And then there is some kind of resolution. And the participants play video games. We created videos and self-reflection exercises and games, all in an effort to learn health and wellness skills 
through fun and joy. So we teach, for example, people and their behaviors. We teach people how to set a goal and how to create a positive habit and their emotions. We have a module on emotions, how to nurture positive emotions and how to manage negative emotions and their thoughts. We teach people how to challenge negative assumptions about themselves and how to write a new story, a new narrative about themselves. We teach people about interactions, how to connect with others and how to communicate. So there are a lot of skill building in this platform. All told takes about 12 hours to do, but even if you engage with it for about two and a half hours, our research team found statistically significant improvements in all the I cope domains of well-being that I was describing earlier. So, yeah, we subjected this to two randomized control trials and we've had wow. a number like, I don't know, 12, 15 papers published on it. This is amazing, Isaac. I love the work you do so much. I'll leave with a quote of yours. You say, psychologists, especially positive psychologists, must be very careful not to be complicit in the move to interiorize well-being. Um, I really hope this podcast today helps people listening, um, if they're in the field of positive psychology, and if, if they're not, you know, they're just thinking about well-being generally to include more of the contextual factors that, that you're talking about and, and incorporate this need to matter in their in their own models of, uh, of human thriving. So thank you so much for the work you do. It's so important for the field. I uh, can't wait to release this episode. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Scott. It was fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.